I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast, and I'm taking this time to ask you during the month of December to financially support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute to advance individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support our efforts. This is the only time of year when I make this request, so I'm adding a little something. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate someone else to receive the benefits of that donation. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 4th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Textiles are a pretty obvious necessity, but a good bit of the history of innovation and the world are told through their development. Virginia Postrel is author of The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World. We spoke last month. Whenever you read uh, books about economic development, the first stage of economic development always implicates textiles. And I guess it's only in the last 300 years or so that we've had additional stages of economic development that have been allows countries to uh, exit that stage, that early stage that we, well, we think of now as an early stage, which is textiles. But uh, you tell a story here, and I've come to appreciate over the years that when uh, you write something, even if I think the, the premise is kind of weird, that I'm going to really enjoy it. And I really did enjoy reading much of this book. So historically speaking, why are textiles so important? Well, there are a couple of answers to that question. One is just textiles are everywhere. Uh, it's not just our clothes, which is the first thing we think of. It's blankets. It's bandages. It's tents and sails, which are more important historically than they are today, although tents certainly are, are still a, a major use. It's various kinds of sacks and bags and wrappings. Um, all They're just everywhere. Everything from seat belts to fire hoses. <laughs> and so when you have something that's that ubiquitous, anything that increases its quality or lowers its cost or uh, changes the amount of labor that needed to produce it has ripple effects throughout the economy it's, it, and throughout society and the way people live. So that's, uh, that's one answer. That's the more general answer. Uh, the more specific historical answer, which I go into in uh, more depth in the book, has to do with the Industrial Revolution and spinning. And one thing we don't appreciate, and I didn't appreciate until I was researching the fabric of civilization, is how much time spinning thread to weave or knit cloth consumed before the Industrial Revolution. And partly that's because we don't appreciate how much thread there is in like anything. Um, in the book, my touchstone example is a pair of jeans. So there's six miles of thread approximately in the denim in a pair of jeans. 
And the fastest way to spin that before the Industrial Revolution would have been an Indian charka, and it would have taken about 100 hours to spin that much thread. And that doesn't include ginning the cotton, cleaning the cotton. It doesn't include weaving or dyeing or any of that stuff. It's just the spinning. So you can see that while spinners were very poorly paid because they weren't very productive per hour, cloth was expensive, even at low wages. And so when you have spinning machines come in and suddenly significantly increase, even the early ones um, made a major jump in how long it took to spin thread, then spinning is no longer a bottleneck. Women are no longer spending all their time spinning. I mean, (laughs) it was a multitasking thing too. There's a picture of uh, in your book of a Chinese woman with some with some writing on it, and uh, the I guess the rough translation is that this is a woman wearing coarse hemp while she makes fine silk. Right. So she's making uh, she's making her taxes uh, in in China and many other places. Uh, one of the forms of taxation was in amount of textiles that you had to produce. Um, And in China, this was often silk. And the peasants who grew the silk, who raised the silkworms, who turned the silk cocoons into thread and then uh, wove that into cloth, they didn't themselves wear silk. They wore rough hemp, which contrary to... uh, some hemp advocates today uh, was was later displaced by cotton because cotton was more comfortable. It had nothing to do with marijuana prohibition. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, hemp was a very rough cloth uh, that you made from from plant fibers, and that was the peasant what peasants wore in in China, and yet they had to produce silk to pay the government, which. Uh, then use that silk in different ways. It, in some cases, it paid its soldiers with bolts of silk. And silk was, in fact, in certain eras in China, a form of currency. There were standardized bolts uh, that were used in exchange, just like money. It wasn't barter. It was, it was actually money. It also, in, in this particular period, which is the Song Dynasty, where this picture is done, it also it was surrounded by hostile kingdoms. And so it would basically bribe those kingdoms not to invade uh, by giving their rulers Chinese silk. So this was a major aspect of life. Yeah. So you tell several stories and almost all of them are uh, innovation stories uh, about how uh in in one example, uh, the productivity of silkworms uh, dramatically altered uh, the production of, of silk and all of the ripple effects there. The the uh, n- another innovation story is one that you just sort of alluded to, and that is the idea that uh, people who did spinning, low paid, but by virtue of creating the machinery to do that, freed up. Uh, you know, hundreds of, you know, a, a full work week for a lot of people to be more productive. 
Right. And even the people who were very low paid in those early spinning mills, they're very low paid by our standards. Uh, but they were higher paid than spinners in the previous eras, which was a lot of people, uh, because they were so much more productive. Um, and then during the once you got that spinning productivity up, weavers made more money. And then power looms came along and weavers objected to losing their good salaries. And that's where we get the Luddites smashing uh, power looms. Uh, but power looms also had ripple effects. Like, for example, sales got much better because you could make them uh, more uniform and dense with power looms. And you have this big expansion of trade and, and transportation, immigration. I mean, all these things trace back. I mean, there are other things going on, but but trace back to improving sales, which traces back to improving thread and, and cloth. Tell me about Joseph-Marie Jacquard. Ah, yes, Jacquard. Well, this is the one thing that people know about technology and textiles, which is uh, Monsieur Jacquard invented, it's usually described as a loom. It, technically, it's an attachment to a loom that could uh, select threads to make patterns uh, by advancing cards that had holes punched in them. And it's actually quite a complex machine. It's really hard to understand. Uh, it was very hard to make. It was at edge of the capability of uh, manufacturing in that era. Uh, but what this did was it, its initial goal was to make very fancy silk uh, brocades, which were the most expensive kinds of fabrics, which were used in palaces. And I mean, they were not just used for clothes, but they were used for wallpapers and all kinds of things like this. And this would be, a, 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 say, a, a strip of silk that would have in addition to the background silk, it would have, say, a scene of birds or something like that woven in, which it was very complicated because, first of all, you have to create the illusion of curves on what is a rectilinear shape. But the other thing is you have to select individual threads as opposed to a whole bunch of threads at a time, and then you shoot across. And there were machines that were human controlled that could do this, but they were very, very tedious. And um, they were very slow. And once you use them, once you set them up, they were very limited in what they could do. And so what the Jacquard loom did was it allowed these very fancy patterns to be produced very rapidly, very easily and reproduced. Um, and that then expanded this kind of, uh, say, upholstery to, let's say, middle class people. It became a. And then the other thing it did was it just sped up production because you didn't have to use this to make super fancy uh, material. You could just use it to make ordinary material, and it was much faster. And so then it further expanded the ability to produce cloth. Uh, for a mass market. This is a quote from your book here. Showcased at international expositions and adopted around the world, Jacquard's apparatus made weaving code tangible 
in a way that could inspire non-weavers. Shipbuilders designed similar systems to control the automatic riveting machines used to build the era's new ironclads. Most resonant in our digital age, the binary structure captured the imagination of Babbage and his successors, quote, many of the subroutine methods and editing systems that are standard in modern computers were conceived in the 19th century to produce cards for textile patterns. That's bonkers. <laughs> yeah, and that's a quote from the 19th. The, the, the modern computing systems used in that quote are the ones from the 1970s, I believe. Uh, but yeah, so there is this, it was, Weaving is the original binary system. It is your rays are lower a thread. So it's one zeros on off up down. That is completely embedded in weaving and weaving goes back thousands and thousands of years. So human beings have been thinking in this sort of on off way about patterning since before there was recorded history uh so that it's it's only in the last couple centuries that it got filtered out beyond weaving and and people had this idea of using punch cards and using on off to control machinery and then later in in computers Uh, but it is part of our shared heritage everywhere in the globe it's one of those things that uh like I don't know, running water. Uh, <laughs> it's just so easy to take uh, these things for granted. I mean, I, I was looking at some of my suits that have not gotten much use in the last <laughs> uh, seven, eight months or so. And I was just looking at them uh, after I'd received your book and looking at the patterns on them. It's like, wow, this is this is complicated. This is yeah. uh, this is a difficult thing to create. Yeah. Well, one thing I. In the course of researching the book, I learned to weave uh, because I knew I, I'm a little spatially challenged and I was never going to understand weaving if I didn't take some lessons. So I I took some lessons and I, I kind of got into it as a hobby and it is challenging. It is fun. Uh, you can do quite a lot. I mean, people who are very good weavers do amazing things with patterns. I'm a mediocre weaver, but... <laughs> Yeah, it, I follow you on uh, either is it Instagram, Instagram or, or some other service, and yeah. I saw you were traveling for a while with what appeared to be a mobile loom. Yes, I have several that can travel. I mean, I, this was a little tiny one. That's the one that I, for early orders, I made bookmarks uh, for. But uh, yeah. So what you know the the lessons that people could take. I mean, this is it's a fascinating story about something that uh, I would have otherwise taken for granted probably for the rest of my life. But uh, what are some of the lessons for uh, innovation for understanding technology? Well, one lesson is that major innovations that significantly improve life are disruptive. Uh, there were a lot of spinners who were put out of work by the Industrial Revolution, and yet we very quickly, people were much better off. Uh, and in fact, there was a movement, you know, political movement to try to stop the machines that were putting people out of work uh, in the spinning industries. And Parliament and Britain said, no, we're not going to do this. We think that it's 
better. Look, there's all these new businesses being created, new new manufacturing forms. And so we're going to say, go ahead. And that was the beginning of what Deirdre McCluskey calls the great enrichment. Uh, so there's that that element. On the other hand, that's a macro invention. There are lots and lots of incremental improvements that over time accumulate to a lot of innovative leaps. And so we need to not only always look for the big things, but also there are lots of little things. And then another lesson out of the history of innovation that comes through very much in the uh, history of textiles is the importance of international exchange and uh, just the, the the way ideas tr- get transferred and mixed and remixed and um, applied in, in new ways and new and that can be in the history of textiles it can be aesthetic ideas but it's also technological ideas uh, so you have somebody in China who's reeling silk off of cocoons and they're using a horizontal reel and then they think oh uh, you know I could do this for spinning I could turn this bindle on its side and eventually you have the belt drive and one of the immediate application of that is for spinning but then it turns out is everywhere in machinery and especially once you start to get electric power and gasoline power and you know sort of the the 19th and 20th century it really is everywhere and that started with some unknown woman in some silk workshop in china centuries and centuries ago Virginia Postrel is author of The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.